Amen. All right, so in Matthew chapter 14, I'm going to try to not preach an hour and a half. I could go two hours, three hours today, but we're not going to. In Matthew chapter 14, we're in this series called King and Kingdom. Jesus is constantly revealing himself that his identity is, is King, is Lord, is Savior, is Creator of all things. He is the, the promised Messiah in the book of Matthew. He continues to preach, calling people unto repentance. He does so in a variety of ways through preaching, teaching, healing through casting out demons, all these sorts of things, to reveal that not only is he king, but he also is a kingdom that is here, but it's not yet. It is, is both and. Um, it is not either or. And so um, Jesus has been preaching and teaching um, that he continues to be rejected. He stands up and, and goes from speaking to the masses, typically, um, to getting in smaller and smaller smaller groups as a sign of judgment. He also begins to speak in parables, as you've learned over the last several weeks, that the parables do two things. They cast judgment to the unbeliever. Jesus begins to speak in code. That's what a parable, it's kind of, it's a comparison, it's a story, but it's not merely a sermon illustration. It's much more than that. Jesus is speaking in these masses. He's speaking in these parables. They become judgments to the non-believer, but to the believer, the believer presses into that. They're like, Jesus, what did you say? The, the non-believer just goes, that dude's weird. Um, the believer goes, man, I gotta press in. What, are, what do you mean by that, Jesus? And Jesus will often pull his disciples, his authentic followers to the side, and he will begin to preach and teach to them. In Matthew chapter 14, verses, uh, what is it, 1 through 12, we have the beheading of John. I preached this a few weeks ago, actually a few months ago now. Uh, if you go back to our webpage, I connected it to the passage where the disciples of John come to Jesus and ask him if he's the real one. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time there this morning. But Jesus has spoken in his hometown. They're astonished by Jesus uh, back at the end of chapter 13, and yet they, they reject him as Lord. So they are amazed by him, but he is not Savior. That's a lot of church folk. They're amazed by Jesus. They think he's cool. He's awesome. There's something um, mystical about this man named Jesus, but he is not Savior and he is not Lord. And so they're rejecting Jesus. And Jesus hears or goes on and he hears about the death of his cousin and the forerunner, the prophet um, John the Baptist. And so upon hearing this in, in verse 13 of chapter 14, um, it says that, that Jesus goes in verse 13. He says, now when Jesus heard this, what did he hear? He heard about John being beheaded. Um, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. All right. So Jesus hears this news. It was Jesus calls John the Baptist the, the greatest man to ever live. Okay, he's the forerunner. He's the last prophet of the Old Testament. He is the one that is preparing the way of Jesus to come. He's also related to Jesus. He hears of this death and decides it is time for me to go into a desolate place. This desolate area is, is also what we see as the wilderness. Jesus goes to the middle of nowhere. He probably has his, his band of brothers around him, his disciples, his closest men, and he is trying to get away from the crowd because he ultimately believes, as Herod believes, or he, he doesn't, Jesus doesn't believe this, but he knows that Herod believes that Jesus is probably the, the, the reincarnation of John the Baptist. So Herod is freaking out. So Jesus isn't scared of Herod, but as we see a lot of times in Jesus' ministry, he, he knows that his time has not yet come, so there's, there's no sense in creating extra drama, because a group can become a mob 
really quickly, okay? So Jesus is really concerned, and we see this transition. He's going to focus in to those 12 men. The crowds are important. He will speak to them on occasion. But for primary focus until he goes to the cross is, is looking at these 12 ragamuffin, probably teenage boys, uh, teenage young men, and is teaching them the, key, the ways of the kingdom. So Jesus goes off into this desolate area. He probably hops in a boat. He starts going across the sea, and yet people can see from the shore where he is going to land. So they run by land to cut off Jesus in the middle of nowhere. And what does the Bible tell us here in um, verse 13? It says, But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Verse 14, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them and healed their Sick. So Jesus is going across the, the sea, the crowd cuts him off, and when he gets there, again, he's, he's in his human body, human flesh, he's, he's tired, he's got a work to do in these men, and yet when he sees this multitude of people, the Bible tells us that he has compassion on him. No longer did his rest matter. No longer did his task matter. There was something greater. The, the word compassion there in the original language means from your bowels. It's, it's from your gut. It's this aching. It's not just a flippant feeling or emotion, but it's something that redirects, change your trajectory towards something else. And that's Jesus had something he was going to do, but he had compassion. He had something that just, man, it got to him. It was in his heart, as we'll often say. You just feel it down deep at where you are, and Jesus sees those people. And that's the, the feeling that he has. It is compassion. It is not just a flippant feeling that you walk away from, but no, compassion is when you see something or someone and it causes, it leads to action. So Jesus, in verse 15, or he tells us in verse 14 that he's healing the sick. Um, the other Gospels, this is the only other miracle besides the resurrection that is in every Gospel. And the other Gospels tell us that, that Jesus spent the day teaching them and healing them, okay? Jesus very rarely, I don't know of a case where it typically doesn't ever happen where Jesus isn't more engaged in teaching than he is these healing things and miracles, okay? He wants them to know the Word. He wants them to know Him. He wants them to know God and His character. So all day long, Jesus is healing this crowd when He was ultimately, or beginning, at the very beginning, wanting to get away from them, and yet turns compassionate toward them. Verse 15, follow along. It says, now when it was evening, again, Jesus, healing, preaching, teaching, all day long to a large crowd. Now, when he it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away and go to the villages and buy food for themselves. All right, so the disciples are there. They've been watching Jesus. It's in the evening. There's two evenings in early Judaism. The first evening was right before dark, and then after dark was another evening. This It's believed to be the first evening. So the, the flannel gram of it being lunchtime and the kid with the lunch sack 
It's not the picture that we have here. This is, this is getting towards dusk. It's in the, the evening time. And people are hungry. Hungry. The disciples, if they're teenagers or just like me, they're hangry. If they've been working all day long like this and they've not been eating, they're grumpy and they're thinking, Jesus, okay, like wrap it up. It's time to eat, okay? I'm a miserable person to be around if I'm hungry, okay? And, and they've got 12 dudes, 12 of them, surrounding Jesus. See, they've just been standing. I mean, what are they going to do when Jesus is there? You're going to stand there. He's king. He is Lord. And, and, and they're, you know, I'm sure they're administering different ministries as Jesus would have them to do, but I mean, for the most part, they're there with Jesus. You're watching Jesus. This is discipleship 101. But now, though, it's evening. And it's time to eat. The disciples are done. Jesus has been taking care of people all day long. And so they come up to Jesus, like, hey, Jesus, hey, man, it's, it's, time. it's time to be done. Send them along their way so that they can all go get something to eat. In John's parallel of this miracle, he gives us a really important fact. It's Passover for Judaism. Okay? For thousands of years now, the, the Jews have been celebrating on this particular day. One of the most holy days in all of the life as a Jew is the Passover. It's the day where you eat the bread and, and you, you drink the wine. You, you kill the lamb, the, spotted, uh, the spotless lamb. You sacrifice the animals, all these sorts of things. And you celebrate this meal to commemorate what happened several thousand years ago when by the, the covering of the lamb's blood over your door, the, the wrath of God would pass over your house. And, and they were told to, to do this yearly to commemorate and to remember that God had spared them by covering their sin with the Lamb. So they've been doing this for thousands of years, and here they are in the middle of nowhere, all right? So you go to like Edmondson County, take a lift, there you go. That's where they're at, okay? Nowhere. Go to nowhere and keep going, and that's where you're at. Okay, and that's where Jesus is doing this with all of these people, and it's Passover. They are, to, they are commanded by God to celebrate this meal, and yet there is no food. They have no way of providing for this. Jesus, tell them to go. Tell them to, to go and Get them something to eat. And yet, what does Jesus do? Verse 16, you know, compassionate Jesus with hair product says, but Jesus said, see, we have a bad picture of Jesus. They need not go away. You give them something to eat. This is when all the guys go, This is when you're standing around looking at each other going, okay, Jesus has just told us to give them something to eat. In the original language, this is an emphatic command, all right? This is an impassive voice. This is, Jesus is commanding them like you would your child, like, go, do this. 
This is the same tone that Jesus uses in this passage when he looks at these disciples and he tells them, hey, you go get them something to eat. In the Gospel of John, we get to peer into a little bit more of this passage when it says that Jesus says to Philip, so um, where, where are we going to buy this bread so that my people may eat? And the Bible tells us that he says this to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip, one of the disciples, said to him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So Jesus, ha- he knows what's going to happen. He knows what's going on. But he is testing the disciples. He's testing them. Eight months to a year's worth of wages, Philip says, is not enough money to feed the thousands of people who have gathered. But it appears as though after Jesus gives this command, that that panic is kind of ensuing into disciples as they run around to the people trying to collect food from anything that they could possibly have, and they find this young man who was probably given this this dinner from his family of, of small rolls or small loaves of bread or cakes and two small fish that were probably dried or pickled. Very common poor meal, especially for a traveler. And this is all that they have. What does it say? Verse 17, they said this to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And what does Jesus say? Bring them here to me. Bring them here to me. See, the first thing that we need to understand, ladies and gentlemen, that Jesus is is very passionate about. He is passionate about these 12 men. He is passionate about disciple-making. This is ultimately not about a meal, but it is more about what Jesus is wanting to do inside of these 12 men and the long-term effects of this moment in teaching them than it is a lot of other things that we have made this story into. Jesus makes disciples. Before he ever tells you and I to go and make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, what is Jesus about? Point number one, Jesus makes disciples. That is what he is doing here. That's why he pulls them to the side, and though, yes, there is a crowd, this has changed maybe the way in which he was going to do it, he uses this opportunity not just to feed these people, but to do something specifically in these 12 men. What are you going to do with five rolls and two pickled fish? One thing you're not going to do is feed all of these people. You are not going to do that. See, disciple-making, if you have ever been involved with somebody discipling you or you discipling someone else, which I would encourage you to do because that's kind of God's thing for us to do, disciple-making is often extremely messy and frustrating because there is not a a step-by-step process to follow. Scripture does not say, all right, if I'm a guy, find a young man and and do A, B, C, D. It doesn't happen like that. That is not what we see in Scripture. 
We see a, a lot of examples of what's taking place. We see lots of descriptions. We see life on life, all of those sorts of things, but we do not have an instruction book from you know, a line by line, step one process to follow in discipling. Because what you quickly realize is that if you're in a relationship with somebody, it gets difficult. They sin. You sin. Things happen in their lives, and, and you're constantly discipling is, is taking place as you lock arms with this individual. See, the Word of God isn't an instruction manual as much as it is a love letter. It's far more narrative than process. It is to be read more like a novel than a textbook. And so we don't always have clarity on how to accomplish Jesus' command to be a disciple and to make disciples. But we are called to obey even if we don't understand. If you go to authentic Bible-believing churches all over our city today, and you were to ask them, what is discipleship, would you not get a variety of methods on how to accomplish that? See, I don't know about you, but I feel like God, through His Word, um, commands and tells me to do a lot of things. And, and yet, I don't always understand them. See, in obedience and in discipleship, we are not always going to get what is the end goal here? What are you ultimately trying to do with wanting me to do this? What, what is the purpose here? And yet, God is calling us to obey even when we don't understand the end. In Hebrews chapter 11, we are told that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So it's assurance. We know this to be true. He continues on. And the conviction of things not seen. Has anybody seen heaven in here? No. I don't care what kid comes back from some dream. We haven't seen it. We haven't experienced it. Do I believe that to be sure? Am I assured that that is a true existence to be with God for all of eternity? I am sure that that is the reality for those of us who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's no doubt I have assurance in that, and yet I, I do not see it. I believe in a man, a God-man named Jesus and yet I've never physically seen him. But I believe that. So God is constantly calling us to have assurance in the promises of God. I love this quote from the ESV Study Bible. It says, faith is settled confidence that something in the future, something that is not yet seen has been promised by God will actually come to pass because God will bring it about. God is going to do something. Discipleship is obedience to God, realizing we don't always see the results, but we know the ultimate author and the finisher of those results. I don't know what the long line, the lasting legacy of Mission Church is. I don't know. But I know right now that if you go to Ephesus where Paul planted that church, that building, if they had one, is in rubbles. The Apostle Paul planted that church. If you go to Corinth, where Paul planted the church in Corinth, guess what you will find? 
None of those original people. None of those original buildings where they gathered. And yet you and I are the legacy from those plants. I, I don't know what the, the final resting legacy of Mission Church will be, but what I, we are called to do is to plant the gospel believing that the fruit that God sovereignly declares in his providential hand is going to bear fruit. It can't be about what we see today. Do we not forget about a man named Jim Elliott who on this very day lost his life to a group of Indians and some of his buddies as they land there to share the gospel. On this very day is the anniversary when Jim Elliott lost his life and yet some of those same Indians who killed him later became believers. Jim never thought, I'm going to go give my life today. Today's the day I'm going to go give my life. Yet what was the long-lasting fruit of the legacy of discipleship? Those people know Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we must understand that in discipleship is that Jesus is looking at the long-term goal, and he knows much of discipleship is the realization, it is the trust, is the assurance, is the conviction that, that what Jesus has commanded you and I to do, he is going to accomplish it. Do you get that? He is going to do that. We are out of any power of our own. We cannot complete what Jesus has called us to do, whether it is the feeding of 5,000 people with some Captain D's or disciple making or church planting or being faithful in your marriage and being a good parent. Apart from Jesus, we cannot accomplish those things. Get this this morning. Discipleship often takes the path of most resistance. Most resistance. And yet we are a culture that is consumed with seeking the path of least resistance. Man, if you want to follow Jesus, don't look for the easy path. Look for the path less traveled. That is the path of Christ. Compassion and discipleship is not about convenience. It is not about sacrifice. You've got any of those friends that as long as it fits in every bit of their schedule, they're fair for you. But if it's inconvenient for them, or a sacrifice for them, or if it's only between these hours, they're good with it. But if it's any other hours, they're, they're not there. See, discipleship is, is not about your convenience. It is about our sacrifice. Jesus, he's going away. He's, he's going to have a teaching moment. He's going to have Sabbath with himself and these disciples. And yet, he has compassion. Something changes in that. We, brothers and sisters, will look at what we have. We will look at who we are. We know what our limitations are, don't we? We know our inconsistencies. We know our, our trappings um, in comparison ourselves and comparing ourselves to other people. See, our, our sin, brothers and sisters, is, is our, our heart is, is bent toward these things. I mean, if you were to hand me a, some bread and fish this morning and you were to say, feed all these people, I, I would just look at here and I'd say, I, 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 I'm hopeless. Like I, you're going to starve. I can't do anything to this. We, 
We look at what we don't have. We look at our bank accounts and we go, I don't, I don't have it. We look at our skill set and we think, man, I, we don't have it. We look at our current circumstance and we say, man, this, this is going on and this is going on, this is going on, this is going on, this is going on, this is going out, and it leads to great despair and, and hopeless. It appears to be impossible. I want you to know this year that God has really sanctified me through the giving of uh, the, the tithes or the offerings here at Mission Church. Because just to clue you in, practically, um, since about last April or May, give or take, um, we have very rarely, if ever, met our weekly goal for the budget. And we, we ended the year making budget. How does that happen? It's been sanctifying. I sit in financial team meeting and be like, I don't know, guys. I'm a little nervous. <laughs> like, like if, we, if we don't make this number, then, you know, I'm not a smart guy, but the, the graph keeps going down. Right? It's sanctifying. We can look at what we don't have. We can be like these disciples. We're panic mode. Yet, what does Jesus do? Jesus had to remind them that it that it's not accomplished by what they possess in and of themselves, but by who possesses them. It cannot be accomplished by us, but it can be accomplished by the one who has got us. Discipleship, this passage, Jesus is discipling these 12 men. Is he caring about these people out here? Yes, is he having compassion upon them? But he is wanting these 12 disciples to get something. He's wanting them to get something about who is in their midst. Who is in their, they've already seen Jesus multiply the water into wine. And in the hands of Jesus, a remarkable thing happens, doesn't it? Verse 18, and he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he took it up to heaven. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied. They looked up at the twelve baskets full of broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So what's the second thing that happens? Jesus multiplies what they have. He multiplies the bread and the fish. He, he, he takes a moment, he, he commands them to bring the bread, bring the fish, and then Jesus tells the crowd to sit down. Now what's interesting about this is that the word that he uses in the original Greek is the word recline. So he, he tells everybody to break up into groups of 50 and to 100 and to recline, like to take a break. What was interesting about this, if you know anything about Jewish history and customs, is that they would recline at banquets. Like at your grandest party, not everybody's standing around wearing a, a cone hat, blowing some, you know, annoying horn. But you are laying down, relaxing, resting, preparing for this banquet. And so Jesus tells everybody, okay, I want you, everybody to recline. To, to lay down. What is he telling them? He's saying, prepare for the banquet. 
prepare for the feast. I wonder who's got the bread and the fish right then, because they're like, oh, they're going to be disappointed. <laughs> like, all we got is a half a Happy Meal, all right, and no toy, all right? I mean, this is going to be bad. I mean, have you ever seen a, a dried or a pickled fish, like in a market? All right, we usually fish with those, okay? Fish jerky does not sound good to me. And yet, what does Jesus do? He, they said, bring the fish, bring the bread. Jesus, blessed, he prays over it. Notice he doesn't bow his head. He looks up to God himself, and he blesses this food. Prepare for the feast. Prepare for the meal. It is time to eat. He gives notice. What does he do after he blesses the food? Who does he give the meal to? The disciples. So he's not done with them. They've got a work to do. Jesus multiplies, not the disciples. Not the disciples. Jesus does the multiplication here. And, and he gives the disciples and, and he says, okay, take this food. He breaks it and keeps breaking it and breaking it. Why? But I want you to get this. Jesus, the creator of all things, has just created bread that has never been placed into an oven. He has, he has just created more fish that have never swam in a sea. This is multiplication. He takes from nothing and creates something and continues to distribute and distribute and distribute and distribute. And the Bible tells us that, that after everyone was eaten and had eaten and was satisfied, what does it tell us? That there were 12 baskets left, each for one of the disciples. They're all staying around. They've picked up all the the leftovers, and there's a basket. Notice, 12. How many disciples? 12. How many tribes of Israel? There was 12. How many disciples? There's 12. How many baskets left? Is 12. Jesus, the guys who were saying, hey man, it's time to eat. You know what Jesus is saying? Hey, I've got to work for you, but guess what? I'm also going to take care of you. I've got to work for you to do, but I'm going to take care of you. I have come to give you life and give you life in an abundance. But guess what I, I would say, and this is an Eric ESV, this is the Eric Standard Version. I think that Jesus is also saying, though, guess what? I've got this filled up basket. It's even more than you can eat. Go, feed my people. What does Jesus do after the resurrection? He's sitting down with, with, with Peter, right? And Jesus has made more fish on the beach. And they had this dialogue back and forth. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. And Jesus continues to tell Peter over and over and over, then feed my sheep. See, Jesus does the multiplication here. He does something phenomenal. The creator of the universe is in their presence, and he is multiplying, not merely so that they could have their bellies full, but he is ultimately multiplying himself into these men so that they can go there for and make disciples who make disciples, teaching them everything that I've taught to you. And lo, I am with you. All authority has been given given to me. And if I'm with you, it doesn't matter if it's walking on water. It doesn't matter if it's the healing of the sick. It doesn't matter if it's the planting of the church. If I'm with you and I am in it, then it will bear the fruit that I have deemed for it to bear. 
That's confidence. That's assurance. That is faith. Not in what we can see. Not in what we can see. But what we believe God can do. Man, there have been seasons in the life of Planting Mission Church when I've looked at my wife and I've said, you know what, I'm a pretty smart fella. I'm, I'm good looking for a bald, bearded man. All right. I have drive. I can go make a lot of money. And we can go just be good church people. Right? When it gets tough, and just to be like, hey, man, I, I mean, I could be a good church member. Right? Me and Laura pull in together, go to church together, walk in with our kids. You know, I can teach some Bible and not get, and you guys are great to me and Justin. We don't get nasty emails. We just, you just tell us our face, which I prefer. Um, you know, we, there have been moments when, when, when you're a small group and 80% of your launch team leaves, it can be really easy to go, I don't, man, maybe, maybe we missed it. <laughs> you know? When, when your givers leave financially, man, you can be really like, ah, maybe I need to go get another full-time job. Right? Have we missed it? When, when the pastor question that I get asked all the time, well, how many people are there? Because, you know, they're trying to, to steeple, measure each other's steeples to see who's is bigger. All right? And they sit here in this situation, and they're just wanting to know, based on success is equal to how many people are there. And we say, well, we, we started out with about 25. We got up to, to 85 or so, and then we're back down to about 50 people, and that's where we've been for the last several years. To a lot of people, man, that seems unsuccessful. But you who have been here, I just want to take you and say, okay, you tell them. You tell them. You tell them what God has done in your life. You tell them how God's worked in your marriage. You tell them how God is at work in your children. You, you tell them how God is discipling you. And then you go, man, it is well. It is well. It is well. It is well in my soul. This is my, my joy is, is to not pastor those who are not here yet, but is to lovingly pastor you and to shepherd you alongside Pastor Justin, to care for the sheep whom God has brought to this flock, believing and hoping and dreaming that God would save more and that he would multiply and multiply. Lord Jesus, give us one more. 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 But to care and to shepherd those whom God has laid before us, believing all the while it is him who multiply. See, brothers and sisters, we do not plant churches that plant churches that plant churches so that at the end of our lives we can go, man, we planted a hundred churches. That is not what we do. And we do not baptize people so that we can brag about the number of people that we have baptized. Because you know who does that? Jesus brings the multiplication. 
You know why we want to baptize people? It's because we want those people who are lost and undone, burning toward hell themselves as a choice of their own will and action. And yet God showed up and renewed them, gave them new life, changing their lives. And so we want, to, we want them to worship God. And so ultimately we're celebrating not the baptism, but we're worshiping God who has done a work, and that is the, the evidence and the fruit of that. We want to plant churches that plant churches that plant churches that plant churches. Again, not so that we can brag about how many that we have, but people who are far from God in our county, in our city, in our state, in our country, and in our world, those who are lost and undone without God would hear and be planted the gospel inside of them and them go from being dead into life. That's what we want to celebrate. Not our numbers at the end, but we want to be faithful as my life verse says out of the book of Acts is that, man, I want to be like the Apostle Paul and run the race that God has laid before me, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then I want to be forgotten, forgotten. But the gospel legacy to continue. Ultimately, it was not about the feeding of the people, but revealing something about Jesus and who he is and illustrating that to the disciples, and this is what I believe that it is. And this is what, please get me, hang with me. I know we're 33 minutes in, okay? Hang with me, stay right here. This is, this is, this is what you came for, is this. What does the Bible tell us? Verse 20, and they all ate and were satisfied. Why are they satisfied? The, the term they're satisfied is the term of a, a, an animal at a feeding trough, and he's ate till he can eat no more. So these, these people are eating the best piece of bread and fish they have ever eaten. It has not been tainted by sin. It is created out of the, the pure power of God. They are satisfied. And then it just goes on, and they took the 12 baskets full of the pieces broken over, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So we learned something here, that it was 5,000 men. It does not count the women. By most guesstimations, by most scholars and, and professors and those sorts of things, will give you estimates anywhere between 10 to 25,000 people that Jesus feeds in the desert, in the wilderness. This is not just a few men, but we are talking about thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. Anywhere between 10 and 25,000 people ate that bread and ate that fish that Jesus multiplied. I appreciate Gospel Matthew. I think. Obviously, the man knows what he was doing because God was inspiring him through the working of the Holy Spirit. But I think to fill in where we need to go and to ultimately understand this, I need you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And I, I've got to do a big reading portion here. I know it can easily get wandering. I want, you've got to read this alongside of me, okay? Matthew doesn't really tell us, well, how does the crowd respond except for that they were full. They were satisfied. Okay? Let's, let's see what, what happens here. 
So he blesses the food, the same, all were satisfied, verse 43 in chapter 6. And they took up the 12, same thing that we have in Matthew. Um, then we have Jesus walks on the water, which we'll cover next week. But then um, it picks back up, doesn't it? It picks back up with this crowd talking about the feeding of the 5,000. Let's look at verse 14. It says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said... This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Hasn't Jesus been trying to do that now? This is probably his second year of ministry. On, on the year from this day when he's feeding these people, he is going to die upon a cross. He's been in ministry now. This is, there's three Passovers that we see Jesus experience in his ministry. This is the second one. And he's, been, he's come to tell them what? I'm the king. So now there are, are upwards to possibly 25,000 people who are saying this. This indeed is the prophet who came into the world. Verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So Jesus has come to say, I'm the king. I'm the king of the world. I am the Messiah. I am the promised one. I am the Lord. I'm the Savior. I, I made you inside of your mother's womb. He's come here. He's, he's done this remarkable miracle and teaching to these 12 men. And what are the crowds saying? Man, he's the prophet. Let's make him king. It, it's time to overthrow Rome. It's, it's time for us to become a, a mob. Let's take him. Let's force him to be king. And yet, what is Jesus' response to that? I mean, if you know nothing about the, you know, Jesus, and you're on an island, all of a sudden this Bible rolls up on your beach there. I mean, you're like, all right, here he goes. It's time, and then, no, he leaves. He's out. He's gone. But, but you're king. You want people to worship you as king. Jesus walks on the water, verse 22. All right? Follow along with me, please. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea that had been there only, had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him, so the same crowd, they're still, you know, creeping on Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, where did you come here? When did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but... Because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man, will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do? So they're, they're saying, ultimately, how do we get more of this bread? To be doing the works of God. Jesus answered them, This is the work 
of God, that you believe in him who has sent. So they said to him, then, then now, I mean, they just, he just did this miraculous sign, and look at what the first question is, or the second question. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. What are they thinking about? Physical bread, bunny bread. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father will, uh, gives me will come to me. You should have that underlined, highlighted in your Bible. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. See, if we were at a real church, we'd have lost our mind right there. But we're Baptists. For I have not come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven, they said. Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That word draw means to drag. So Jesus drags them to himself. And I will raise up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is the true food, and my blood is the true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread of the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. 
The Bible will go on to tell us from there in the Gospel of John that guess what happens to the crowd and many of his disciples? Poof. They leave. Even Jesus looks, it gets down to him and the band of brothers. He looks at him and he says, oh, in verse, what, verse 67, so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go his way as well? Do you want to go away as well? I believe wholeheartedly that the major issue in Christendom is this issue, especially in America. Worship Jesus. Worshiping of Jesus. We see here in this passage, and I want you to know, I wish that I could, could explain it well enough and as good as God can, that, that Jesus is, is extremely stern in this passage. These crowds, they've been, you know, creeping on Jesus. They've been stalking this Jesus, this, this crowd that he has just fed, this 25, upwards to 25,000 people are still trying to find Jesus. Why? Because their bellies are hungry. They believe that Jesus is a prophet. We've seen prophets in the Old Testament do miraculous miracles through the working of the Holy Spirit in their life. Jesus is another one of those prophets. He can do some of these miraculous things, but are they truly worshiping Jesus? Jesus. See, brothers and sisters, please, I am talking to you. They have gathered for a program. The program had kept them interested. They had gathered for prosperity. They are hungry. These are probably poor of the poor people. They're starving. Their kids are hungry. They're coming to Jesus. Jesus will do whatever. Make some more of that bread. Make it rain. That bread, Jesus. This is what prophets, prophets, Moses, you know, look at what Moses did. And Jesus corrects their terrible theology because ultimately, what does he say? That bread came from God. I am not Moses. I created the bread. I am God. Jesus is trying to say something about himself ultimately in this passage and ultimately in our lives. We do not come to church for a program that keeps you or your kids happy. We do not come to Jesus and the gospel so that we can have prosperity and whatever we believe that that is. No, we come to Jesus for the person of Jesus. Is Jesus enough for you even if your belly is empty? Jesus is saying this to these people. Will you follow me? Get this. It's been phenomenal. Our family, my, my sister's been really deathly ill. She almost died. Um, she can testimony that. You can ask her about that. It's been awesome. You ask this, what's going on in your life? Well, I believe that Jesus has healed me. Man, we had a rejoicing Christmas at our house this time because I saw from death into life in a physical manner. She experienced it. So it's easy to go, man, Jesus celebrating. Jesus is awesome. But brothers and sisters, is Jesus enough if he doesn't heal you? What if he takes your kid? Is Jesus enough? See, prosperity is not always Bentleys and mansions. Prosperity gospel can be in a person. 
And I'm telling you, the prosperity gospel is straight from hell, and yet many of us are cutting our teeth on it within the church and claiming it to be Christianity. But what if you lose it all? What if your house burns down, your, your job, you lose that? What if your husband dies, your wife dies, you get cancer? What, whatever happens, what if America falls apart? Is Jesus enough? Is he still God, even if he does not heal your immediate issue? Jesus is declaring something. I've got to be enough. I am the bread of life. I am what this is all about. Do you see, do you really see the issue that is taking place here? John Piper says the essence of evil is the, lo the lostness or the loss of taste in your appetite for God that you prefer something more than God. That you prefer something more than him. That I want bread. God, Jesus, I, I just want this. I just want this. I, and, and, and this is, is where evil all stems from, is that we see this in our first parents in Adam and Eve. God was giving them everything, and yet they, they wanted more of something than they wanted God. It is a worship issue. Jesus is about making disciples. Jesus multiplies, but Jesus knows that the only thing that makes sense to worship is himself. In this past week, what is illustrated that you prefer God over everything else? Everything. If we could follow you around, what is in your life is illustrated, brothers and sisters, more than your vanity, more than our clothes, more than our vehicles, more than having, a, 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 you know, I love white mochas from Spencer Coffee, more than those little amenities and conveniences. And I, 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 I find myself experiencing a, a small bit of great joy when I sip on a good cup of coffee. And confessionally, I know that that seems really minuscule, but I want you to know that can easily become an idol. When I desire that over desiring God, when things get hellish in your lives, brothers and sisters, do you run to the remote? Do, do you run to, uh, to a book? Do you run to a video game? Do you run to a beverage? Do you run to a substance? Or do you run to God? They were running to bread. Jesus says, I'm the bread. I've got to be enough. You've got to hunger for me. You've got to thirst for me. Do you prefer God over your husband? Do you prefer God over your wife? Do you prefer God over your children, over your money, your news clothes, your latest gadgets? How, how does your bank statement reflect that you're more satisfied with God than you are our, or we are our idols? This is not a play. Because we have created entire church models, and I'm not saying those out there. I'm saying it can be easily this right here. When we have fallen in love with something that God can produce and more than God himself. We want something that God can produce more than the possessor of all of these things. They desired this bread more than they desired God. The people were satisfied on this physical bread. Their bellies 
We're full, but are you satisfied with Jesus more? Because if you're satisfied more with Jesus, then guess what? You can fast this week. You can, we, we'll have much smaller houses for the glory of God because we're willing to give away more than we live on when Jesus is enough. When he's enough. How, how, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I could take you to my house right now. And I'm addicted to coats. You ever seen a man wearing more than one coat? Yeah, you have, but you say, man, there's a weird man walking right there. That's a homeless man. A man with any sense can only wear one coat at a time. But I have a plethora. Because I'm, I'm trusting in that to keep me more warm than I'm trusting in the person who worships Jesus. How many, know, how many more pairs of shoes does a man need when you've only got two feet? Is it enough? You've got a pantry full of food, a refrigerator full of food, and walk there and open it up and say, I ain't got nothing to eat. Anybody ever done that? I ain't got enough. Drive by somebody driving your favorite vehicle. You start making up ways of how they stole it. Because it makes you feel better about yourself. Please. I cannot think of a greater definition of the word worship than satisfied. Satisfied. Are you and I, are we satisfied in Jesus? When we need to feel better about ourselves, I typically eat, in case you can't tell. I want you to be enough. I want to be satisfied in you. Where everything's right at home or not right, or whether the, the church is thousands of people, whether everything is going the way, exactly the way that I believe that, that it should go. Lord Jesus, I, I want to be satisfied with you. I want you to be more than enough than whatever it is that I'm, I'm eating, that I'm taking place of that I'm trying to replace in, in part of you, that I'm trying to eat of whatever fruit that is, believing whatever lie that is being spoken to me about how that I can be greater if I only had this. Like these people, I am these people that can easily follow Jesus because I, I want prosperity, I want ease. I, a hell sounds like a terrible place. All, all of these things are, are, are we satisfied in the personhood of Jesus. The Beatitudes tell us that we went through in Matthew chapter 5 verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. When you're tired, what do you run to? What do we love more, the created bread or the creator? 
I love this right here. This, this, get this. I think this is from Piper as well. But he asked the question, do you, are you pursuing after Jesus? And he probably did some like weird hand gesture whenever he was doing it. <laughs> he goes, are you after Jesus because Jesus is useful? Are you pursuing Jesus because he is precious? Is he useful to you? Man, we got to get those kids in church. They got to get squared away. Got to teach them. I know it's the right way. I want to be a good moral citizen. Do you follow Jesus because he is useful? He's going to get you to your, the means to your end. Or is Jesus precious? Who is greater? The filling of your belly or or, or let me ask you this question, which is, which is greater, and I think he asked this question as well, is that which, which is greater, obedience to God or delight in God? Obedience or delight? Brothers and sisters, the answer is delight. Because see, if you delight in God, you'll be obedient. But you can be obedient and not know God. You can be a good moral person, a, a goody goody. And this is, this is the hardest thing about preaching and why I feel like this is as foreign mission field to me right here in Bowling Green, Kentucky as is Mark and Parker in, in West Africa. Because we are pressing against uh, the deception here amongst these people in our city, in our state, that, man, you can be a good moral person, a, a goody, goody, and, and you can not use bathroom language or kill people or steal stuff, and, man, show up to church every Sunday, and you are good. But you're a weed. You're lost. These people were around Jesus. They were around him. They're not like us who are believing upon a man whom we've never seen. They saw him. They, they could touch him. He touched them. And yet they missed Jesus. They were not convinced of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, man, my prayer for us as Mission Church as we go forth from this place is that, that we will learn what it means to be satisfied in all aspects of our lives. Not just simply what happens here on a Sunday morning, but I'm talking about Monday morning, Tuesday night, in the lunchroom, at, at Wednesday. No matter where you are in the influence of your life, in the secret corridors of your heart, which no one knows but you and God, that in the center of all of that stuff, there will be a deep joy and satisfaction in the person, his preciousness, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He, he has got to be enough for us because when it gets really tough and you learn that he's not just going to give you whatever you want, many people will walk away from Jesus, but I pray that we will be faithful with what God has given us, even if it seems to be small and, and hopeless. I want us to trust the one who is all things, who knows all things. He is the God of your life. I feel that there's going to be many people that are going to just to the very core, just wrecked at judgment. Because they were around Jesus. 
They were around good church folk. They had a list of all their, their good moral activities, yet Jesus is going to say, depart from me, I did not know you. See, Jesus is about disciple-making. Jesus is about multiplication, but Jesus is about the worship of himself because he knows that's the only thing that will bring life. It's going to be rife. They ate the manna and died. Eat Jesus and live. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know him? Do you want to be a part of a, a church that whether we have little or we have a lot, we got that. We got that. We got him. Isn't that crazy? We got him. That's got to be the goal. Not a building, not programs, not a flashy, you know, TBN television station program. Jesus. That's enough. So when we gather in small groups, big groups, when we're struggling, when we're wrestling, all we're doing is helping each other come back to that. Is he precious? Is he precious? Or do you just want your belly filled, your wallet overflowing? Is he it? Is he enough? Let's pray. Lord Jesus.